you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians, and if you don't have your Bible with you this evening, please feel free to just listen along, follow along as we continue. Otherwise, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. And let's go before the Lord one more time this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for the grace that you've given to us, that you have abundantly supplied to us through your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would bless us this evening, that you would arrest our attentions on the words of the Apostle Paul that are the inspired words of your Holy Spirit, life-changing words for us this evening. We pray, Father, that we would be convicted and corrected and drawn into deeper and more intimate fellowship with you through your son Jesus, and that we would be more like him as a result of this this evening. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight in Ephesians 4, in verses 17 through 24, we're going to continue looking at practical Christian living or at instruction on how to take some of the meaty portions that we've looked at in Ephesians 1 through 3, chapter 1 through chapter 3, and begin to see how that ultimately begins to play out within our lives, to understand how it is that predestination can affect the way that we live, or at least even understanding how that affects the way that we live, how understanding that being sealed with the Holy Spirit can affect the way that we live. We're going to continue looking at those things and essentially pick up some of the themes that we had looked at last week in the idea of how it is that the Word of God that prophets apostles, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers equip us for the work of the ministry, which creates a very striking understanding within our lives that it's not my job to be doing the work of the ministry, that it's not the other elders' jobs, it's not teachers' jobs to do the work of the ministry, but that it's actually your responsibility to be doing the work of the ministry. It's on my shoulders to be presenting the things that can equip you for that. And I think as a point of encouragement, recognize that the amount of scripture that you have to this point helps to equip you. I think part of the issue that we may run into with some of those kinds of understandings is that, well, I'm not equipped at all for any kind of ministry, but any amount of Scripture that you're receiving is an initial equipping, or at least a partial equipping, for you to be able to start doing the work of the ministry. So you guys are there in those positions and in those privileges to be able to minister to each other. But as we continue looking through the context, as we recognize that Paul is talking about how ministry can take place within a church, and of course much of that coincided with the understandings of holiness, that if there's sin within my life, that will hinder me from doing ministry. That I need to be able to be diligent to remove sin from my life so that I can be more effective in ministry. He's now going to show us this evening of our lives in any sense and in any capacity, not just in the areas of church life or ministry. 
but he's going to show us what pointless living is like and how to avoid it. Paul is being very diligent here to be an apostle, and that is that he is not only interested in a particular aspect of your life. He's interested in the totality of your life. He's interested in every single area of your life. He's even interested in what takes place in your mind. And he's interested in these areas for the specific purpose of seeing you become more like Christ. Because again, he is laboring as a prisoner for your sake. So he's interested in every single area of your life. He's not only interested in what happens within your life when you come here on Friday nights, Sunday mornings, Wednesday evenings, or whatever it is, or there's Bible studies that you attend at some other point in time. He's not only interested in those areas, as important as they are, he's interested in what you do even in your free time. Now, he's not doing this as sort of to be domineering or controlling so that way he's creating a bunch of little puppets that will run around and do what he wants to do. He's interested in blessing us by seeing every single aspect of our lives conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and it is something that would glorify God's name. And there is a severe warning that he is giving in every area of our life that we run the risk of engaging in pointless activities that ultimately lead to sinful living as well. Mundane living is not Christian living. There's a difference in the manner in which individuals live, and there's either earthly living, that's the idea of mundane, or there's spiritual living, there's heavenly living, there's Christian living. And there's a call in our text that is very extreme. And praise be to God that He has given us Christ and His grace to be able to deal with this kind of extreme living and extreme exhortations. I think you'll find at the end of this study this evening, and the, as a result of this study, there might be a possibility that a subsequent study that we go through when we finish with Ephesians might be going through the book of Ecclesiastes. But you'll find that perhaps the extremeness of what Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 is talking about could result in our lives where we would be bored with the world. We would be bored with the things that this world has to offer because we've seen such an extreme awesomeness of what it's like to live in the way in which the Apostle Paul is instructing us this evening. And so I think that would be really awesome and so commendable if every single one of us got to a point where perhaps the report from our parents is, I would love to that my kid would pay more attention to the schoolwork or to homework or to whatever it is that they're doing, but they keep being distracted by God's holiness. Imagine what that would be like. You got fired from your job. How How come you got fired from your job? I was daydreaming about God's holiness the whole time at work. Now, of course, again, these are hyperbolic statements. These are kind of exaggerated statements 
to really be concerned for God's holiness is to excel in some of these other areas because you're doing it for the glory of God. But you get the you get the point. You get the extremeness of what is being expressed here. That your mind, instead of wandering about girls, or instead of wandering about latest fashions, or instead of wandering about whatever movie or video game is coming out, or whatever it is, instead of being distracted by the things that you should be doing, because you're distracted by these other things, you're distracted by how how immense God is. You keep sitting there thinking about what is it like to be holy, holy, holy the way that God is. What is that like? What is it like to be God? And we're going to see here in a moment why that's even more applicable because he's going to tell us to imitate God. What is it like to be God and to be so much pleased and enjoying yourself for all of eternity. What is that like? What is it like to be most pleased with your son, Jesus Christ? What is it like to be like God in his holiness in this sense? Well, let's read our text to see a little bit more of what I'm talking about instead of just me rambling on here this evening. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, it says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There are three lifestyles, really we could say two lifestyles that are present within our text. Ultimately, if we're looking at it as three lifestyles, we have, we have several issues here. There are two lifestyles that are bad. There's one lifestyle that is good. And the two lifestyles that are bad can ultimately be considered really one lifestyle. That's one way of living your life. And what I mean by that is, is that there is a particular kind of living, there's a particular kind of lifestyle particular kind of behavior that is present within our text that basically looks like this. There is nothing but pointless living within this person's life. They do things that have no purpose. They do things that have no point to them. There's no value to them. The things that they do are in and of themselves entirely useless things. They provide no benefit to the people that are doing these things. And the reason why we can understand that to be really kind of the same lifestyle as one of the other lifestyles in the text is because that lifestyle, pointless living, leads to sinful living. Pointless living leads to sinful living. You can be doing something that's pointless and not necessarily be sinning, but a lifestyle that is consistently pointless will result in sinning. 100% of the time, if you are doing things that are pointless, you will always end up doing something that is sinful. And then, of course, the opposite end of that spectrum is Christian living, 
Which if the opposite of pointless living is Christian living, then the opposite of pointless living is living with a point, living with a purpose, living with meaning, living with value. All of that stuff is contained within Christian living and is the means of avoiding sinful living. It's almost like you have two people on a cliff and they're sliding down the cliff and the one person that can avoid going off the cliff is the person that is most concerned about that and is the person that does pointful things, if that's such a word, that does purposeful things, such as trying to grab a branch or trying to grab a root or trying to do something to prevent from going over the edge. But the person who lives in pointless activities, meaningless activities, is the person that is totally clueless of what's going on and doesn't give a hoot about flying off the edge of this cliff. Now remember from last week, again, we were talking about the idea of being equipped from the Word of God, and that means that there are ministry opportunities present in the lives of those who are equipped and that the body of Christ doesn't function properly unless every single cell is functioning the way that they're supposed to be functioning, which is by being equipped. Now that, that brings up the idea that if there is a group of equipped Christians within a community of believers, that that community is being built up and that the ultimate result is going to be spiritual maturity. You don't have spiritually immature individuals running around mucking things up, but that you have a group of spiritually mature individuals, and this kind of a community is a community of stability, and they're also a community that avoids deceitful things or pointless living that can lead to even more kinds of sin and deceit. Now, when I was younger, which was um, like now, I'm still pretty young. So, but when I was younger than that, <laughs> I remember eating planters cheese balls. Do you guys remember? And I, I'm not just saying cheese balls. I'm saying planters cheese balls. The guy that does the peanuts, right? Do you guys remember that? It came in like this little metal container. Remember that? Yeah, there we go. Like, I feel like we're the oldest dudes in the room then. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Not just any cheese balls, but planter's cheese balls. Now, we're, it was in my mother's van. She had a van back then. Super cool. And I remember having a container of planter's cheese balls, and I spilt it all over the floor of my mom's van. And so I had to pick it up. I had to clean it up. And, I mean, this was a van where she carted around, like, you know, me and my brothers that played soccer, and so, like, our nasty socks that we haven't washed that's just it. We haven't washed them ever. Those are like laying on the floor of the van. It's just, it's nasty within this van because she was carting around and then she was carting around a bunch of our friends. So a bunch of teenage guys were in there. And if you know anything about teenage guys, they're the nastiest creatures on the earth. National Geographic does specials of how horribly nasty this particular species of individual is. So as that horrible mental image is firmly stuck in your mind right now, now imagine me spilling cheese balls on a floor that has also been the sweat trap of these nasty guys, as well as, you know, all sorts of different, you know, things that are just laying around on this floor to spare you. I won't go into any more details. It's a little disgusting. So I spilled that. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, so there's cheese balls on the floor. I have a container. 
I can easily clean this up by just putting them back in the container. Nasty teenage boys. Those molecules have now mated to become super molecules with the cheese balls. And I have taken those molecules and put them back into a metal container that is where they should have been in the first place. And so this all now looks snazzy. So I forget where we were driving, but we ended up at school. One of my friends comes over and uh, sees that I have planters cheese balls. So what do you think she wanted? She asked if she could have some. And generally, you know, I, I don't think that I was really being malicious. I mean, letting her eat it's kind of a strong statement. I don't... I mean... So she's eating it, and uh, I don't know, my memory is a little iffy. I feel like I warned her, but I don't think I did. So she's, she's just coming back, and she's just piling them in her mouth, just taking these things down. And then finally at some point, and I don't think I was actually even the one that revealed this. I think somebody said, those were on the floor of the van. And if you've ever, like, seen somebody eat something that subsequently they realize that they shouldn't have eaten it, their face usually goes something like... <laughs> and then there's this confusion of what to do next, because you don't want it to go this way, so it needs to go this way somewhere, and then everything on your inside also then wants to be on your outside, because that's kind of disgusting. So I, I feel bad. And ironically, the only point of this illustration is the fact that she was deceived. She's deceived. <laughs> right? That was like a cologne commercial. You've got like a bunch of people running around on a beach and all of a sudden, with no warning, there's like a bottle of cologne or something like that. Or like a Super Bowl commercial. You get 30 seconds into it and you realize it's a bike commercial, but you had no clue the whole way through it. That's this kind of illustration here. So the idea was she was she thought everything was okay, but realized that this was, uh, I think, how zombie apocalypse start was by eating the planter's cheese balls off the floor of my, man, my mom's van. This, this is really bad, and she didn't know that. She was ultimately deceived, and I, I think that's the mentality that we can have in a spiritual understanding without being equipped and without following along with these kinds of things is that we get deceived by what life is or what we should be doing. And it might seem pleasurable, and I'm sure there's probably tons of preservatives on those cheese balls to the point at which you probably wouldn't taste anything except for what it's supposed to taste like. There's this utter deception that can go on that the kind of activity that we're doing is enjoyable, it is pleasurable, it is good, but the reality is, is that it is actually harmful for us and really bad. pointless activity leads to more sinning because people have no clue what the activity actually is doing. And that's stated within our text. The idea of being clueless in what's going on in the world around us. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. They're in the dark. Just like this poor girl, I don't think she talked to me ever since. I don't know what's going on with her these days. I think we lost touch for 
obvious reasons. Okay, hold on before we throw the cancer flag around. That could have been anything. They're darkened in their understanding. They're in the dark on what's going on in their activity, in their pointless activity. This is a really nice way of saying that they're pointless in their minds or that they have no real understanding that they're actually spiritually dense individuals. The way that Paul is painting this is that for these individuals, when it comes to matters of the kingdom, when it comes to spiritual issues, they lack spiritual intelligence. They don't know what's going on. Even worse than that, these individuals would be strangers from the life of God. They're not just strangers from godly living. Bear this deeply in mind that individuals that live in pointless lifestyles that result in sinful lifestyles are not just simply alienated from godliness. They're alienated from God's life. Which also indicates that there is an ability to not be a stranger to the life of God Himself. That you could know the life of God. That you could experience the life of God. That you could actually be in a relationship with this being, but pointless living alienates you from His life. It gets even worse than that. These are hard-hearted individuals. These people are stubborn when it comes to change. When it comes to moving away from pointless living into purposeful living. There is a stubbornness that exists. There's that hard-heartedness that exists. There's that pharaonic lifestyle. That lifestyle that Pharaoh had whereby which you would have plagues in your city, in your kingdom even. And your response is simply to keep doing what you're doing even though plagues would be telling you that it's wrong. It's the same kind of living within the lives of individuals that have pointless living. Plus, there's, there's no regard for anything that's right or wrong. And in fact, notice what it says in verse 19. They've become callous. They've become callous. If you guys ever had a callus like on your foot or something like that, and you try to like touch it, and it's almost like there's no feeling in it anymore, and it's really dry, it's really rough. That's the idea of these individuals when it comes to sin. There's just total numbness when it comes to the subjects of sin. And everything within their life is so pointless that when it comes to the differences between good or evil, verse 19 again, they give themselves up. So much pointless living eventually causes a person to give up when it comes to the understanding of what's right and what's wrong and to give in to what's wrong. I give up. It doesn't matter because... There's no purpose. There's no point in any of these kinds of individuals in the manner in which they think and in the manner in which they behave. And so because of that, when it comes to sensuality, this is the Greek word for a license to sin. 
When it comes for the opportunity to show your badge as a certified sinner that it's perfectly okay, you give up, that's all right, I'll do that. I'll be an individual that has a license to sin and that I'm greedy to practice every kind of immorality. There's a greediness that ultimately exists within these individuals' lives. And there's a pointlessness that causes them to give up and say, I'm craving this kind of sinful living. Sorry, I got lost here in my notes. So because of this, these kinds of individuals that exist within this pointless living, within the futility of their minds, these kinds of individuals are in a dangerous situation. And the reality is is that the Apostle Paul is going to counteract this with recognizing what the real thing, what the real kind of living should be. So you get this picture, and it is an Ecclesiastes picture, Ecclesiastes 12.13. After everything has been examined, after we examine every kind of living, after we look into the lives of every kind of individual, and we come to a specific conclusion about how they're living, the conclusion is this, that everything is vanity, and that the only thing that we should be doing is fearing God and keeping His commandments. That's the whole point of man, it says. How do I recognize pointless living that leads to sinful living? And notice that's where it starts. That's where it ends. Pointless living over here. Uh, sinful living over here. I've given up whatever it is, whatever struggle, whatever fight, whatever battle it is that I have with sin, because of the amount of pointlessness that exists in my living, I get to the point where I give up. And not only that, but then I get to a position of being greedy for sin, where really my lifestyle has degraded to the point of being like the blind men of Sodom groping for their sexual sin outside of Lot's house. It's what it becomes like. So how do I recognize what pointless living ultimately is? Well, first off, you're given an example, and this is probably where there is a severe sting that could take place in a lot of our lives. Because essentially, Paul doesn't just simply say, don't live in pointless living, and then just leaves you at that. But he says that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So there's a specific example of what this kind of living ultimately begins to look like, and it's the lifestyles of the non-Christians around us. Are we existing in activity whereby we are doing the same things as the world around us. If we were to take our lives as sort of like a movie reel, and you're watching our lives, and you put the life of an unbeliever right next to it, and it starts playing through, would you see the same pointless activity in the life 
of your movie reel as well as in that of the world, of an unbeliever's life right next to you. So this isn't the idea that you need to leave the world, that you need to get out of the world, or you know anything of the state of the statement that you really what you got to do is you got to you got to join a convent, you got to go lock yourself in a castle in the middle of the woods, put on a camel hair robe, only eat locust and honey, and ignore everybody else around you. There's one problem with like being in that position, with taking yourself out of the world and isolating you within that kind of a location, is that you're not locking yourself in a position of protecting you from the world. You've locked yourself in a domain where it's you and your sin doesn't fix anything so it's not what we're saying you're not taken out of the world you're still in the world but you're not of the world there is a distinct difference that needs to take place within your life your activity and the lives of those around us within the world too many Christians and this is something that wouldn't necessarily be that hard to prove. Too many Christians not taking the time to examine or to scrutinize non-believers to see the behavior in which they should avoid are taking the opportunity to scrutinize and examine unbelievers to begin to mimic what they're doing. Don't be like them. Don't be like the world around us. In fact, one thing that I think in terms of applicational value is to re-examine our series on dating and to begin to recognize the relationships that we have need to be fundamentally different than how the world does relationships. Call it courting, call it dating, call it a romantic relationship. It's all really kind of irrelevant if it looks the exact same way as what the world does. The way we do church... The way we do church is definitely an easy place to begin to examine how we should be doing things fundamentally different from the world. But instead, we have this persona, we have this impression that really we need to create environments whereby which unchristians, non-Christians can come in and feel comfortable and not be turned off or anything like that, because if they're turned off, then they'll, they'll walk out and they won't come back. But that should naturally happen anyway by the fact that you tell them they're terrible people. When you open up the Word of God and you show somebody the Word of God, in fact, I have a friend whose dad literally made the statement to me that he doesn't want to read the New Testament because it makes him feel like a sinner. That's good. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to open itself up as a mirror for you to expose the horrendousness within your heart so that that way you could begin to recognize that there's pointless living and there's purposeful living and that Christ is the manner in which you can receive purposeful living and you can actually deal with that sin that's within your life. It is never an effective way to deal with sin to hide it. And trust me, I've done this with the way that I've cleaned apartments in the past. It's not clean if you just push it to one end of the room. Praise be to God, I got married. <laughs> there we go. 
It's not, it's not clean if I'm taking it and I'm pushing it under the rug so that way when somebody else comes in and they look around the room, they go, oh, this looks pretty legit. This looks pretty clean. It's not clean. It's only giving the appearance of cleanliness. And on the inside is pointless living. And don't be like them because that's alienation from God. Notice the remedy. There's a specific problem that exists within our text. Don't live as the Gentiles do. Don't live as the world around you does. Because in that case, in these individuals' lives, there is pointless living. They don't understand things. They're alienated from God. There is an ignorance that is in them. They are hardened of heart. They become callous, and then they just give up, and they practice every single kind of sin. And I think there's a specific issue that is present within that, in the reality that if I have a specific struggle with sin, there's that one kind of sin that just keeps gnawing at me. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's a sexual sin. Maybe it's drunkenness. Whatever it is, there could be a particular kind of sin that keeps reoccurring within my life. And it could be that the main reason why I keep giving up, you don't, you don't stumble or fall into sin. You give up and then you willingly commit it. That the reason why that continues happening is because of a significant amount of pointless living within my life. I keep doing pointless things, and so I don't have a wall built up for when those temptations attack. So notice this remedy here. Sensual living, greedy to sin living, you're clawing at sin because it is unsatisfiable within your life. That's the issue that's here. That's why they're greedy. The idea of greedy is not being able to be satisfied. It's like having a thirst that is unquenchable. So you keep grabbing the water there and you keep trying to drink it and drink it and drink it. This is a horrible image of somebody clawing after sin. But our remedy is verse 20. This is not the way you learned Christ. You didn't learn Christ by pointless living. You weren't simply doing all sorts of pointless things. And then the terminology that's normally thrown around, I found Christ. You didn't learn Christ in pointless living. You didn't learn Christ in immorality. You didn't learn Christ in being greedy for sin and being unsatisfied for sin. This is not how you become a Christian. Participating in pointless activity is not how somebody gets saved. It's by the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's by an Ephesian style of salvation where God raises you from the spiritual death that you've been living in. You don't learn Christ by following pointless things. You don't learn Christ by behaving in the same way that the world does. This is not how somebody becomes a Christian. In every single person's testimony, in every single one of our testimonies, there's probably various different circumstances that exist in our lives that caused us 
to maybe question things or look around for things or be impacted by things. But every single circumstance that we became saved in was regardless of our circumstances. Every one of our testimonies, every one of our testimonies, every Christian's testimony is this, God saved me. Yes, He saved us out of the worst imaginable circumstances. Yes, He saved us out of horrific cults and out of horrific religions. Yes, He saved us out of terrible concepts. He saved us out of sin. But it is completely irrelevant in those circumstances as to how we became saved. Christ saved us from our sins. That's how you learned Christ. I think that's significant, that's huge, that he would say, here's pointless living. By the way, that's not how you became a Christian, because then you begin to recognize, well, if that's not how I became a Christian, and this is how I became a Christian, this is how I should be living. The the way in which you learned Christ becomes the way in which you live Christ. You didn't learn Christ by doing those things. You learned Christ by prophets and apostles and evangelists and pastors and teachers. You learned Christ by saints equipped for the work of the ministry. You learned Christ by having individuals preach the gospel message. And I think it's it's too hard for us maybe sometimes to come to grips with that understanding that It's not a compelling circumstance of being in sin that caused us to come to Christ. It was the sovereign grace of God that caused us to come to Christ. And that perhaps in a lot of ways, through pointless living, we may be not understanding the circumstances of our salvation to the point in which we're resorting to just simply talking about things that may in and of themselves even actually be pointless Christ teaches us the gospel that's how we become Christians and in learning the gospel there are several things that begin to take place as a result of that Christ teaches us in the gospel not to continue living in the way in which we were That's one thing that's also a problem and a misunderstanding in many ways in which we understand the the gospel in our day and time today is that there's this, this kind of misunderstanding that really God loves me the way that I am and there's no reason for me to change. He just brings me in. He's a loving God. He's not a confrontational God. In fact, you'll hear words like he's a gentleman and different things like that. And, you know, God is just simply interested in saving me, but it's okay for me to remain as I am and it's okay for me to do the things that I'm doing. That's not how you learned the gospel, if indeed you've heard about Christ. The Christ that we all have heard about, that is the Jesus that saves, is the Jesus that saves by giving us an entirely new way of life. It's completely changed. 
total renovation. And in fact, then, with that gospel that he is teaching us, he is teaching us to then stop the old way of life, put off the old men, and then put on the new men to then be renewed and to grow and to move away from those kinds of pointless living and those kind of sinful living that is totally unsatisfying and depressing in so many different ways. That's what the gospel is teaching us. That's the salvation that saves, is when Christ is saying to come out of the tomb like Lazarus, stop living as a dead person, start living as an alive person. Now, in the way in which he kind of categorizes what it means to put off the old man, to put off the new man, is by this middle statement that sort of joins those two concepts together. He says in verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt. There's a lot of corruption within that life. That that life has, and here's our illustration again, deceitful desires. It has planter's cheese balls on the floor of a van kind of desires. It's deceptive, deceitful desires. It's all corrupt. It's all a problem. That's the old life. And then verse 24, put on the new self. So you'll see verse 23, the bridge that joins those two concepts together, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Change the way in which you think. And in fact, I think this probably even has huge implications for what we do in our free time. What we do really in anywhere, in any area of our life, ultimately, But in those moments where there's really nothing to do, there's nothing going on, and we start to think to ourselves of different things that we can do, put off the old desires in thinking about the different ways that you can live, the different things that you can do. Start thinking differently. Start thinking like the new man. Start thinking like the equipped Christian. Getting to that point could even be understood as putting off the old man. Have your mind in the spirit of your mind. You now have this understanding that the Apostle Paul had even said in other passages of Scripture, you have the mind of Christ now. You don't just simply have the same mind. You have the mind of Christ. You have the ability to think Christ-like, be renewed in your mind. And there's so much in gospel motivation that gets you there, recognizing that Christ died because of that old way of your life. He died for that. Those were the things that put Christ on the cross as the old way of life so that your new way of life would be His way of life. Here's some ideas in different ways in which we can begin to change our thinking and different ideas that we can put off the old and put on the new. One of the things that's beautiful about this passage is the fact that it's stating that you already have the new you. You don't You don't have the ability to put on a new outfit until you actually have that new outfit. And Paul's not saying there's something you got to do in order to get that. He's saying you have that now in your wardrobe of you. You have the old you 
And that's when you wake up every morning and you put on the old you and you go out and you still live in pointless living. He's saying there's another attire, there's another outfit in your wardrobe that you should be putting on. That's the new you. You have the new you as somebody who believes in Jesus Christ. And isn't this just something that is so phenomenal to already have a new version of you that can be living in purposeful, meaningful, valuable living. Are you excited to see the new you? Have you ever thought about that? Talking about renewing your mind? Have you ever thought about what you would be, what you would look like in the new you? That you already have the ability to be like. What is it like to be in the new me? And then, of course, he's talking about that there's a continual action of doing this. Every day, there's a putting off of the old self. We know what that's like. We know what the old self is like. We know how bad and how pointless that's like. If we didn't know it through experience, we know it through theology. We know what that's like. But there's the new you that you can put on. And I would even say, I would even argue from Scripture that there's something to experience in the new you that we could begin to experience every single day as long as we were putting off the old person and putting on the new person. Doesn't that excite you to recognize that there could be something new every single day that is even more enjoyable and even more satisfying because you're putting on the person that God wants you to be and that's pleasing to Him. Of course, here's the spoiler alert. The new you looks a lot more like Christ. And that's what ultimately is so much better about the new you. The old you is this unsatisfied, sinful, pointless life. The new you is experiencing more and more of the life of the sinless Son of God that He is well pleased with and of Himself experienced permanent joy as he endured hostility of sinners so that he would save you. To deal with the torture that you would never experience. My wife and I watched that movie Unbroken and we were seeing the torture that uh, Louis Zamperini was going through. Nothing like what Christ went through. Not that it was trying to make it look that way, but the point is, is that that kind of torture in wartime is such so horrible, such horrendous, and such inhumane torture. And yet Christ went through something that was even worse, yet He did so with joy. And that's yours within the life of Christ. Now much of what this looks like is going to be talked about next week in more detail, but here's a couple of things that we can consider in terms of putting off and putting on. Number one, engaging in no spiritual activity is a sure way to end up doing something pointless. Engaging in no spiritual activity is pretty much a guarantee that you're going to go into something that's pointless. If I'm not doing something that the Scripture is instructing me to be doing, that is instructing me to be focusing on, in fact, even in that respect, if I'm ignoring the Word of God, then there is a sure way that I can go into pointless living. And in fact, there's much that people talk about as being purposeful living. 
and calling it spiritual living, but at the end of the day has no point and no purpose in it. And if time weren't running short, we could definitely look at that in a lot more detail, and we probably will at some other time. But no biblical activity is a sure way to end up doing something that's pointless. No consistent prayer life. No consistent scripture reading, scripture memorization, but also scripture loving. There's a difference between reading the scripture and enjoying the scriptures. Enjoying what God has to say chewing on what God has to say as if it were actually spiritual food, which of course it is, to take that and to chew on it, to savor it, to enjoy its flavor, to recognize it for what it actually is. Without that, you can definitely end up in pointless living. And here's the, here's the problem with that too, is you were such an amazing sinner. This isn't a compliment. You were such an amazing sinner. You practiced sin. You did it well. We all did it well. We all were professionals at sinning. It's very easy for us to sin because we know how to do it so well. But in order to live righteously, that's not something that we know how to do well. In fact, that's the whole reason why the context last week was talking about equipping you in order to be a better individual in ministry as well as in the way of life. So we need to learn some of those things. There's that cessation of our professional sinning and there's the initiation of learning how to be a professional Christian. Ask yourself what the point is in any circumstance. What's the point of this? That's going to be a very problematic question. And you might end up coming across to other individuals as this snooty, uptight, super spiritual, bothersome kind of a Christian when you engage in this kind of activity where when any kind of a circumstance comes around, you say, what's the point? In fact, really bother your parents with this question. Bug them. Bug them to death. Make them reach into the recesses of their minds to give you whatever spiritual reason they can conjure up on the spot to be able to justify what it is that they're wanting to do or wanting you to do. I'm going to get some phone calls this week, I'm sure. Maybe hit it a little bit closer to home. Let's go to the mall. Why? <laughs> Everyone's a comedian tonight. Why go to the mall? What, what am I going to do there? What's the point of me being there? And why do that? And you can begin to see why this is so annoying. Because I don't want to have any kind of a justification for what it is that I'm doing. I don't want to give any kind of a reason or any kind of an account for what it is I'm doing. Let's go watch a movie or let's turn on a TV show. Why? I'm going to love that conversation with my wife when we're both, you know, having a long, hard day. We just want to unwind, just want to relax. And let's turn on a TV show. Why? Why? I think I'll surf the internet. Why? What is the point? What is the purpose of this? Let's go on a vacation. Why? And it seems like there's some extremeness in, this, in these questions. That's the point. Because really, is it going to be so problematic to be a Christian who enters into the shores of eternity and do you think God's going to say, man, you missed out on something? Did you not catch the season premiere? Of course, I'm being extreme. This is, again, kind of exaggeration here. 
course, I'm not saying don't have fun. I'm not saying don't have a good time. I'm saying ask why. Find the purpose and then do it with that purpose. And do the purpose in terms of, is this a renewing of my mind? Or is this a degradation of my mind? Am I reverting back to the old me to participate in this? Or can I do this as the new me? That's the point. Can I engage in any particular activity and make Christ famous through it? Or is he completely pushed out of my activities because don't want him there. Don't want him there because I don't want that conviction. I don't want that embarrassment that he knows about what I'm doing. I don't want him there. You can, you can be on the throne, Christ, on Sunday morning, and I'll sing songs like, where you go, I'll go. Who you love, I'll love. I'll sing songs like, you know, take me out on the oceans where I'm just totally out of my comfort zone and I'm, I'm serving you. I'll sing these kinds of songs, but there are certain kinds of activities that don't have a point, don't have a spiritual new person point, therefore, butt out. Lastly, don't get discouraged. Paul is talking to Christians in which he assumes that there actually already is a cessation of walking like the world and that there will continue to be the beginning portion is not a command when he says in verse 17 now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do that's not a command that's simply a statement this is what it's like to be a Christian and it's a continuation it's a present tense in other words you guys have be encouraged. You guys have gotten to a point where you haven't been walking the way that the Gentiles do. You, you're starting to look like a Christian. You guys are starting to look like Christians. But being renewed in your mind, you will continue to be less and less and less and less like them. And we'll look next week at some more specific examples of what it's like. Some Pauline examples. Some examples that Paul gives. Let's go ahead and close. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your loving kindness. We thank you for this passage of scripture that has taught us that living as an unbeliever is pointless. There's no purpose there. In fact, Father, we recognize that you have instructed us otherwhere, other places, that even if we were to lose the death, if we were to lose a loved one and experience a death like that, that we who are Christians have an ability to grieve as a new man with hope, with purpose in our grieving. So we recognize that in every single area of our life, we need your grace, we need your help, and we need your strength and that you would continue to renew our minds and conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that you would be glorified, your will would be done, that we would be able to enjoy you, be satisfied with you, as Psalm 90 says. And that we'd give you thanks 
We pray that you would help us and that this would be well-pleasing within your sight. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.